Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Travis Decker coming from the United States Air Force Academy. Today, I'm talking to both a friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Jonathan Dickens. He's recently moved into the Army Reserve after serving as an active duty Army orthopedic surgeon out of Walter Reed and is now at the illustrious Duke University. He continues to be at the forefront of both shoulder and knee research, critically evaluating outcomes in our active duty patient population. He has traveled the world and has applied what he's learned to our active duty patients, improving outcomes and readiness levels within our military system. In addition, he is the absolute mastermind behind many grant initiatives, partnering with many organizations to include our own to help study everything from complex shoulder pathology to arthroscopic surgical skills degradation. He's a phenomenal mentor and teacher to many to include myself and has now taken his unique skill set to Duke University. Truly humbled to introduce my friend, mentor, and colleague, Dr. Jonathan Dickens. Thanks, Travis. You're way too kind for that introduction. And yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really happy to be here at Duke and, and talking to, uh, to a Duke alum uh, like yourself. You know, I think no question we're lucky to be uh, able to take care of so many of our military service members. And I think that's what has really allowed us to kind of answer some of these burning questions, uh, particularly in sports medicine. So uh, we certainly see so much of that in the military, and it's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Well, John, let's get started. And today we'll be focusing on your article within our arthroscopy published most recently in October of 2022, entitled Revision Arthroscopic Bank Cart Repair Results in High Failure Rates and a Low Return to Duty Rate Without Recurrent Instability. So let's get started. John, you have an incredible background and knowledge of shoulder instability with multiple publications. You've had these patients that are challenging and difficult to manage at times. So can you tell us the idea behind this specific paper and what you saw in your practice that led you to ask this question? Absolutely. It was really sort of uh, simple from uh, the question standpoint. The uh, situation where you have uh, bone loss and a prior failed arthroscopic bank cart, the decision algorithm moves uh, pretty quickly to bone augmentation procedures. And so what we didn't know was in those that didn't have bone loss, uh, obviously we like to uh, move towards uh, arthroscopy whenever possible in the U.S., but we started to see some failures over time. And so our question was, what is the preferred treatment really in those patients that have a failed arthroscopic bank heart uh, without significant bone loss? What's the preferred treatment uh, for those folks? And so that's what that really drove us uh, for this question and what we were seeing uh, in our practice that made us want to answer. Awesome. Well, you know, I think that uh, definitely within the military, we we see a uh, disproportionate amount of shoulder instability. So it definitely gives us uh, this this ground to study these folks. I see them daily and always wondering kind of after they've uh, they've been fixed prior, if they have a failure what possibly is leading to that. And so can you discuss some of the factors that you've noticed both personally in your practice and those that you've discovered in the literature that have led to your active duty patients having problems after revision bank cart in the setting of minimal to no bone loss? Yeah, and I think that's in part what was the eye-opener uh, for at least myself and I think some of our other co-authors as well. So we excluded significant bone loss greater than 20%. And for the majority of these patients, they were all really quite minimal in terms of what you would expect for a failed arthroscopic bank heart, you know, in the 5.5 to 6.5% uh, 
bone loss. So it's hard to attribute the amount of bone loss and, and the failures uh, just to that uh, alone. And in fact, uh, even though our bone loss is pretty small, the, the ones that failed in arthroscopic bank heart revision uh, actually had a little bit less bone loss. So a little bit paradoxical there. But what that really sort of drove us to, or at least start to think about was what's the status of the capsule and the quality of the capsule labral healing. And maybe it's not as robust uh, as we uh, were thinking it was. And perhaps that's a relatively underappreciated reason for why we're seeing these failures in these patients that don't have bone loss, uh, but have failed in arthroscopic bank heart. So uh, that was sort of the biggest eye-opener, I think, uh, for us and, and what it's really made us start to consider. Yeah, interesting uh, thought. I think we're we're always focusing on the, the quality of the labrum. Uh, but it, it, recognizing uh, capsular deficiency as a as an issue in a revision setting could be leading to some of these results. And in terms of patient and procedure selection, within your practice and experience, specifically in patients with no glenoid bone loss and a single traumatic event that led to a failure after primary bank heart repair, prior to the study, what was your go-to procedure? What what were you all in at both at Walter Reed and West Point? What what were you guys going to? What was your algorithm prior to this study? Yeah, and this really gets to the question of uh, open versus arthroscopic uh, bank heart, and what would we be considering at when we're seeing these patients? The prior uh, to our study here we were probably erring more on the side of arthroscopic bank heart just because that's what we were obviously very comfortable with. We thought we could get a good evaluation of not only the anterior labrum, but posterior labrum and address any combined or other pathologies at the time of arthroscopy. And that's certainly the case. But now I think even in that setting, uh, for me, my go-to procedure has moved more towards the open bank heart. Uh, maybe to the latter J if there's just a little bit more uh, bone loss um, in the revision setting. So I think those are really where we are now uh, thinking about these patients a little bit more in terms of the open bank heart uh, as a revision procedure without bone loss. Well, I think it's an interesting argument is when I can recall, it's been a few years now, but when I was going around for fellowship, they used to ask us the question about, how many arthroscopic bank carts have you seen versus how many open bank carts? And we, we've done this at the Anna Somos meeting where people raise their hands. And in practice, essentially nobody has seen the open bank cart. It's become a procedure uh, that, that nobody has seen or utilizes anymore. This paper definitely calls that into question and whether or not we should bring, be bringing it back uh, as a more routine use and as an active part of our algorithm in the setting of no bone loss which I think is is fairly prevalent uh, when we do see these failures. One thing I did notice is that in terms of possibly a change of mindset for other additional add-on procedures is that at least from what I could tell in the table, it was that remplissage was rarely utilized in this revision cohort. I know there's been some recent studies that have been published in the Green Journal. And uh, do you have any thoughts on this in light of, uh, of this more recent literature supporting its utility, its efficacy, and even its equivalence to that of possibly Latterge? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Travis. Um, there's no question that 
we are doing more remplissages now than we were when we started following this cohort. And certainly nowadays, some of these patients would be getting a remplissage at their time of arthroscopic bank heart repair primarily. The other important part and why these patients in this cohort didn't have as many remplissages as you might expect is just because there wasn't that much bone loss, both on the glenoid side uh, as well as the humeral side. They, they had a Hillsax lesion, but in terms of actually being an off-track uh, lesion, uh, even today, as we go back and apply the on-track, off-track measurement to these patients, uh, relatively few would be considered off-track. And then, you know, I think the other part of the consideration, and as we consider the the Rimplissage, one study that I think is important uh, to remember is, is that by Mike McCabe and, and Buddy Savoy, who, who looked at the Rimplissage at the time of a primary bank heart, as well as a Rimplissage done in the setting of a revision surgery. And actually what they found is, you know, Rimplissage in the revision setting had much less uh, desirable outcomes, worse uh, patient-reported outcomes, higher uh, recurrence rates. So uh, that really speaks to the fact that if we are going to do a remplissage, and I think you know, there's no question that the literature is supporting that more and more early on, it's best used in the uh, index procedure. John, I think that's a great lesson. It's something that I, I can, I think many of us can practically apply as we're evaluating these patients. Um, it is that that is always kind of perplexed me in that primary versus revision setting the addition of a remplissage and especially with technical changes and the thought of just simply having a, a hill sacs whether it's a chondral hill sacs and there's not a, a substantial amount of bone loss with it you know I've heard different arguments and you can go down the list of our mentors to include that of like John Kelly and uh, he's he's a remplissage lover right so he's he's seeing that a hill sacs and he's He's feeling it. So we can't get away with everything. Each additional procedure can add some level of either complexity or change of outcomes. And so I think that these lessons learned and understanding that right in the set in the primary setting, we might should be considering that more liberally uh, to prevent that recurrence. And so, John, just as a brief summary to, for the listeners, I know you've been able to, you've kind of been sparsing out the, the information throughout your responses this far, but can you kind of summarize your results in your, your main take-home conclusions that, that you found from your study? Yeah, it's, it's the biggest take-home point from this study was when we did a revision arthroscopic bank heart repair, uh, even the setting of, of minimal to no bone loss, the failure rate of those patients, even as we followed them out two years, seven years, and, and beyond, it approached about nearly 50%. And so what that suggests is, is we need to be uh, looking at what we're doing at the time of revision surgery to offer those folks the best opportunity to return to activity and not have a recurrence. And, and that might be an open bank heart to improve our capsular management, perhaps get a little bit better capsule labral uh, healing uh, that we can generate theoretically in an open bank heart procedure. It might be using remplissage more aggressively early, it might be uh, moving to bone block uh, procedures. And, and those are all kind of different options. Not all of them obviously were a part of this study, but, but the take-home point is that we need to be scrutinizing what we're doing at the time of revision failed uh, bank heart uh, surgery carefully. 
John, these, the, the results that you had from your paper and that you just summarized for us, I think are very humbling for, for those of us who have seen even the best of surgeons uh, and the best arthroscopic surgeons who will routinely uh, approach uh, revision bank carts simply with the mindset that, well, maybe there was something technical that wasn't done correctly or they have they can do it better. I can use more anchors. I can use bigger anchors. I can use different tapes. But it seems like that even in the best of hands, it's essentially a coin toss that uh, a 50-50 chance that the revision arthroscopic repair would actually work and hold. And so I think you've mentioned earlier, but have these results changed and completely changed your algorithm on how you treat failures after arthroscopic repair? And with that being said, although 50% is not great, there are benefits of arthroscopic procedures versus that of open procedures. So has it completely eliminated the chance for you to perform an arthroscopic revision repair after a failed primary repair without bone loss? Thanks, Travis. You know, I, I, would, I would never say never. And I think there's uh, certainly situations where you would consider an arthroscopic revision the ideal uh, treatment or approach. And, and that might be uh, situations that you know, have glaring technical problems or other uh, pathology that really is addressed uh, arthroscopically. It's going to be complex. It's going to uh, depend a lot on surgeon training. But, you know, the hope here, at least my hope, is that people will uh, endeavor to get a little bit more comfortable with the open bank heart. There's certainly things, uh, if you do that, that you'll see you can do a little bit better. Maybe that's shifting the capsule. Uh, certainly opportunities to improve capsule to bone healing. All those, I think you do uh, see some, some benefits from the open approach. And that will come in handy uh, throughout uh, someone's career. So I would never say never uh, in terms of not doing a revision arthroscopic bank heart. In my hands, uh, in no bone loss. I like the open bank art. Uh, for others, it, it might be a different procedure. It's hard to say what that is, but just to, just to say that revision arthroscopic bank art should be uh, carefully considered probably more than we've been doing in the past, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it makes me reconsider a lot of uh, how, how I attempt and discuss these revision procedures with the patients. Um, one interesting finding I also saw in your paper is that a large proportion of the failures occurred greater than three years out. Can you explain why this happened? Yeah, no problem. I, you know, it's important to remember these are this is a unique population. The average age of patients at the time of their index surgery is, is 19, uh, 20 years old. They're all active duty in the military. Uh, they have an extremely high uh, activity level with regards to their upper extremity use. And even at the time of their revision surgery, they're young. So the average age at the time of revision surgery is 23. So as people continue in the military, as opposed to some other kind of civilian or, or uh, less demanding jobs, they might self-regulate down to a certain level of activity. Uh, and, and that's not necessarily the case in the military. There's uh, a certain amount of physical activity demands and occupational demands that are absolutely required uh, that can't be adjusted. Uh, but we also know that if we do follow patients out for longer periods of time, 
uh, we see uh, higher rates of recurrent instability, and that's been true of arthroscopic procedures, whether it's our primary or revision, the long-term failure rates continue to creep up. And I think that's especially true in this young population and this population that really doesn't uh, have the opportunity to self-regulate down to a lower uh, level of activity. So, you know, certainly there are uh, instability uh, recurrences, uh, even uh, at the longer term follow-up. And I'm not sure that that, at least for me, was was particularly surprising, although it wasn't uh, what I wanted to see. I think I think this is a unique patient population. John, it's, it's always great to to read these articles coming through the uh, through the journal that I think will really impact uh, a lot of practitioners that are dealing with patients with shoulder instability. As we kind of get ready to close out, do you have any further words of wisdom or technical pearls on how to optimize patient outcomes after the arthroscopic failure in those without bone loss? Well, thanks, Travis. I, I really appreciate the discussion and thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here on the arthroscopy you know, podcast and talking about this article. I would say, you know, what I would maybe encourage is that we try to keep an open understanding of all the different procedures that are available to us. And just because we have the arthroscopic toolbox so readily at our fingertips, the open uh, procedure, especially the open bank art, while it's probably even a little bit more technically challenging than a ladder jay, I think is one that is extremely versatile, important, uh, and one that will certainly help uh, shoulder surgeons out uh, at some point in their career. And I would definitely encourage uh, those folks uh, that do instability surgery to at least be familiar with it. So if the uh, occasion uh, presents itself, it's at your disposal. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's always a pleasure. It's always fun chatting with a friend about their findings. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. This is Dr. Dickens' article in Arthroscopy, published in October of 2022, entitled Revision Arthroscopic Bank Heart Repair Results in High Failure Rates and a Low Return to Duty Rate Without Recurrent Instability. And it can currently be accessed at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal, nor are they meant to be used as treatment recommendations for patients. So thanks one and all for joining us and have a great evening.